This is hell. Okie doke. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show in alphabetical order, Alex, Jerry, and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Alex, how's your week going so far? Uh, Me and Jonah were joking about... Uh, if there was a German word for when you can't tell whether something's just uh, bad because of corruption or incompetence, mm-hmm. then we decided that should probably be an American word. <laughs> Actually, it should be a German word because German words, they just add, keep adding words to it. So it's like 47 letters long. So it might be able to define it better. Jonah, how are you so far this week? Uh, I fell asleep crying last night because uh, Mayor Pete decided to go full rat mode. <laughs> how did he go take that mode in your opinion, Jonah? What do you mean, take that mode? <laughs> he's always in that mode. Oh, no, I mean, he's, yeah, it's always, you know, there's like a sheen over it, covering it all times, you know? He's so skeezy. I love him. Oh, man, he drives me crazy, that smile. I, I'm always waiting for his face to pop open and we see a tiny little alien controlling his entire body. I give it another month before <laughs> we see that. <laughs> we're ch- today, we're chasing ambulances that are speeding toward the root causes of human suffering experience disproportionately by the economically and racially marginalized. We also have this week's question from hell for you. Our very supportive listening audience will tell you what you can win by having our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. And uh, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. And I made the mistake of watching the Iowa Coxes last night. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is... Uh... Where'd you leave the damn vote totals? Where did you leave the damn vote totals? And the prize for the question of hell is somewhere maybe they, where they could be. Hey, this is a hell tote bag. Oh, sweet. Where did you leave the damn vote totals? And you can keep your vote totals if you win in our This Is Hell tote bag. Where did you leave the damn vote totals? Uh, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to myself or Alex at chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. Again, our question from hell is where did you leave the damn vote totals? Where did you leave the damn vote totals? The person who has the best answer this week gets a This Is Hell tote bag. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Our guest today is sociologist Joe, no, Josh, sorry, sociologist Josh Syme, author of Bandage, Sort, and Hustle. Ambulance crews on the front line of urban suffering. Ambulances are the lifeblood for economically and racially marginalized urban communities whose residents depend upon emergency services as their front line of health care, with lives today lived under neoliberalism, suffering from greater precarity, especially for those who are most vulnerable. They have been forced to become even more vulnerable as their suffering continues with those at the bottom taking on society's heaviest burden. Ambulances are one of the few guarantees the poor have when it comes to their physical well-being. So what happens when those frontline workers are pressured from the top down by the state and agencies that regulate the poor and from the bottom up by nurses and police officers? who uh, govern the poor, push and pull them in, in their different roles and missions in different directions. How, what is the impact on the ambulance crews? And more importantly, how does this evade the real question, which is what are the root causes of the poverty that affects those who most often request 
an ambulance. We'll try to get a better understanding of frontline workers who govern the poor as well as the capitalism that has devastated them when we talk in a few minutes to Josh, who is assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. Josh is broadly interested in the governance of poverty and suffering, and this has led him into the sociologies of medicine, punishment, and more. Josh's work has appeared in American Sociological Review, Punishment in Society, Teaching Sociology, and other journals. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I-M. This is not the media. This is hell. But sadly, unfortunately, I made the mistake of wallowing in the media last night. Over the last couple of nights, actually. Sunday Sunday night, I blissfully wasted over four hours of my very finite lifetime on an overhyped media event funded by huge corporations, all to profit billionaires, often with public resources, in other words, taxpayer money. As an aside, whenever a rich team owner wants to buy a new stadium, why don't we see tea partiers picketing outside team or league offices? It's almost as if the tea party crowd are only upset when taxes benefit the poor. It's almost as if it's just a front for billionaires and success, who successfully duped a bunch of useful idiots to cut off their nose in spite of their face and then give that nose willfully and freely to the wealthy. Fox News should really get in on this, but they won't because, like the Tea Party, they're just another front for the rich. Last night, Monday night, yet again, I wasted hours of my life on another overhyped media event that, in the end, like Sunday Spectacular, will have... Very little, if any, historical significance. Both events were played up for weeks, even months, with constant speculation that was, in retrospect, completely uninformed and wildly inaccurate. Remember when there was no doubt Joe Biden would be the Democratic nominee and that the Patriots would be in the Super Bowl again? So we had the night that celebrates the culmination of a sports season, a sport that has led to a neurological issue causing suicide amongst the sports participants, followed by a night that hosts the first step in the process to determine who will be on the ballot for president in November. That is a very flawed, undemocratic system taking place in a state that demographically is not representative of the United States as a whole. In other words, I was friggin' white, and so is New Hampshire. So why do those two states get to pick first? By the time the primaries get to South Carolina, Whitey will have already decided the nominee, or at least given their choice a huge advantage in the white media who will have bestowed upon the front runner the title inevitable winner, undermining the motivation of the opponent's backers to even go out and vote. But the lack of democracy in the Iowa caucus and the white supremacy it seems to support came up in last night's coverage as much as concussions came up in the two weeks of pregame for the Super Bowl. The most debilitating and threatening aspects of football and democracy were, for the most part, ignored. For the most part. Like I said, I made the mistake of watching CNN's coverage of last night's Iowa caucus. All CNN and MSNBC are today, and I assume Fox is, but I can never get through even a couple of minutes of that freaking channel. Uh, all they are is wild speculation, guessing, predicting, punditry, my guess is as good as yours, commentary that reveals nothing to the viewing audience, but talking head opinions without much irrelevant facts. It's hyperbole, followed by conjecture, followed by best guess, done by people who have proven to be really bad at guessing, but are never held accountable for their horrible, horrible predictions. Which means... I didn't have to watch. 
I could just pop in every so often, see nothing has happened, hear another insane prediction or an analyst say nothing is happening and kill time while watching a Futurama rerun that I've probably seen at least a dozen times prior. When Futurama went to commercial break, I was back at CNN and being thoroughly disgusted by a past guest on our show here on This Is Hell. Yes, a past This Is Hell guest was on CNN on their panel last night. And that person is CNN commentator Van Jones. Oh, how I hated our interview with Van Jones. God, that was awful. Van told the viewing audience that he understands the Iowa Coxes look weird and confusing, but Van smiled, saying, I love this stuff. I'm a total nerd, and, and nerds love this, or something like that. I was reaching for the remote and wondering what the hell I was watching. I, was just, I couldn't even remember what I was watching before. I forgot all about Futurama and ended up on Antiques Roadshow, an episode that was being filmed in a tourist trap fake mock-up of an old western town. I started thinking how CNN's coverage was a viewer trap of fake democracy. After they valued the early 20th century Danish side-by-side -side cabinets on Antiques Roadshow. I went back to CNN this time. Nia Malika Henderson, a CNN politics reporter, was actually pointing out that the Iowa caucus was an undemocratic process and inefficient, and there are definitely demographics challenges when it comes to Iowa being representative of the U.S. Only to be shot down by white CNN political analyst Gloria Borger, who said, some of us are old enough to remember 2012 when Rick Santorum didn't know he won the Iowa caucus until three primaries later, and it was already too late for his campaign. Which is a relevant point, Gloria. But it not only supports Nia Malika's idea that this is an undemocratic and flawed process, but in 2012, when Santorum was screwed by his party, Gloria, Nia Malika was 38 years old. It's a way to be dismissive of a black woman political analyst, Gloria. It really, really looks good on you. Donald Trump Jr. has apparently tweeted about last night saying that if Democrats can't run the Iowa caucus, how can we trust them with health care? Of course, the people who will be running the Iowa caucus wouldn't be the people who would be running universal health care, but whatever. Well, it took the Republicans three three primaries later to finally figure out they named the wrong winner in the 2012 Iowa caucus juniors. So by your logic, the Republicans should abdicate all of their power. And now we are inundated with media hype every day, and it has a huge impact on our daily lives, if we want it to or not. The resources they have to create candidates out of thin air, donning winners and losers with authority only to the next day, makes some completely countervailing statement on the hopes that the viewers have the same short-term memory that apparently the talking heads do. And in the process, they turn democracy into, I was going to say a horse race, but it's worse. You ever been to the dog track? It's a dog race where nobody really knows much about any of the participants. There is no racing form. They're chasing a fake object buzzing around in circles surrounded by sleazy, sleazy betters. So sleazy you find them at the dog races. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell coming up. Ambulance crews and their work can reveal a lot about the United States, poverty, capitalism, and how we govern and regulate the poor instead of addressing the root causes of their poverty. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where did you leave the damn vote totals? Where did you leave the damn vote totals? The winner gets a this is hell tote bag. Live from the nightmare of want, 
This is hell. By investigating the frontline work of emergency responders, we can get a different perspective on poverty. Ambulance crews disproportionately provide their services in economically and racially marginalized urban communities. Under neoliberalism, these communities have become more precarious and more dependent on emergency services like ambulances as the social safety net continues to fray. Here to offer insight into the ambulance as a site of governing and regulating the poor sociologist Josh Syme is author of Bandage, Sort and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. Welcome to This Is Hell, Josh. Hello, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Josh is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Southern California, and you can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I-M. A real general question at first. Why ambulances? Before deciding to investigate the lives of ambulance crews, what do you believe you could uncover, reveal about ambulance crews' lives that the public may not otherwise know and may have a direct impact on their lives? So why ambulances? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, when I started this project initially, I was, um, you know, a little unsure about what it is that I wanted to study. I was, before this, I was studying prisons and incarceration. So I was kind of tapped in already to this literature on governing the poor and governing marginalized populations. Um, long story short, I was actually kicked out of my field site uh, where I was studying prisons before. And so I had to find a new project. Um, and I was inspired by a conversation I had with a parolee who I had interviewed. And, you know, I was talking to him about his general living conditions. He lived in a transitional housing unit. And he kept telling me how much he hated living in this transitional housing unit. He kept t- telling me that there was fights all the time, that there was people stealing, um, you know, property from other residents. And seemingly to provide me with evidence about how terrible his living conditions were, this man told me that the ambulance is always there at his transitional housing unit. He said that at least, you know, twice a week, it seemed like ambulances were rushing into the building to respond to overdoses and other forms of medical emergencies. And so that conversation just kind of stuck out to me. Um, and so when I was kind of at a loss about what I was going to study next, I considered studying ambulances. And the truth is, is when I when I initially entered into this project, I thought I was going to study trauma and injury. So I assumed that what I was going to look at was like gunshot wounds and and how ambulance crews were responding to you know brutal traffic accidents and those things um and so that was the initial project design and you know part of that is uh shaped by a kind of hollywood fantasy that i had about what ambulance was were doing but it was also shaped by i think misconceptions that were offered in academic literature about what ambulances were doing and then even in some of the uh coursework I took, because I actually went to become an EMT before I started this project, before I even did any ride-alongs or anything, and, you know, half of my curriculum in this EMT program was dedicated to injuries. And so I went in there kind of assuming that I was going to study this governance of injuries and trauma, and I assumed that it was going to concentrate towards the bottom of a complex urban hierarchy. But when I went into the field, um, you know, I was kind of laughed at at first. I think a lot of the ambulance crews thought it was kind of silly that I went there to study trauma and to study injury. And you know, I was told, you know, from the very first day in the field that I probably wasn't going to find all that much. That they said, you know, most of the calls that they respond to were a usually not as severe as I was thinking that they were going to be. They said most of these calls were going to be kind of so-called BS calls, and. Um, 
you know, B, the other problem was that they said, that, you know, a majority of their calls are actually not trauma. They're not injury related. That even the severe emergency calls, they tend to be what are classified as medical emergencies, like, you know, cardiac problems, diabetic emergencies and things like that. So while I was in the field, I started to adjust the project. So I always kind of knew that it was going to be about the ambulance in uh, poor and otherwise marginalized neighborhoods. I assumed it was mostly going to be about the governance of, of trauma and injury at first, but it quickly developed into a project about the governance of poverty and suffering on a much broader scale than just injury. As I realized, most of these ambulance calls were for you know, low priority, or it was at least framed um, by the organization as low priority calls, and calls that seemed to be mismatched with the instruments and the vocation uh, of paramedicine. Just another general question. How often is being an ambulance worker boring, just sitting around doing nothing and waiting for something to happen? Because I wonder if you find yourself or if ambulance workers find themselves in a position where they are wanting to end their boredom, to be have their boredom broken up by a call, even though a call to an ambulance likely is not because something good has happened. Did you ever find yourself in a position that you wanted to go out on a call, even though you know that a call to an ambulance can't be that great? Yeah. So it's interesting about this issue of boredom. I I don't know if I'd say that ambulance crews are typically bored. They're incredibly busy. I think that they are, are frustrated often, that they aren't responding to the types of calls that they were trained to respond to. But they are certainly working, they're out there grinding, they're working a lot, they're um, pushing through a, you know, a large number of calls in their shifts. Most of them are what I frame as just kind of vocationally unfulfilling jobs. So they are, you know, somebody calls 911, um, you know, as one example, you know, they're locked out of the transitional housing unit, um, they need some shelter for the night, so they, they want to essentially go to the emergency department and use a bed. And so, you know, those types of calls are not all that fulfilling from the standpoint of a paramedic or an EMT which, who are trained to respond to kind of severe emergency problems. And so at some level, yeah, that's like maybe a little bit boring, but I think I wouldn't necessarily describe kind of the baseline experience as boring. I would describe it more as vocationally unfulfilling, but they're certainly busy. And, uh, you know, one thing I really emphasize in the book is that in no way am I suggesting that ambulance workers or emergency uh, workers generally are lazy. That's, that's certainly not the point that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to emphasize their frustrations and being mismatched with the type of work that they are usually assigned to do. But ambulance workers actually tend to prefer the high severity, the so-called legit 911 emergencies over the so-called BS calls. And to me, that was a little bit surprising as a labor scholar because the legit calls are the more exhausting. They are more physically exhausting, they're more emotionally exhausting, and they're more mentally exhausting. For one thing, they require much more paperwork and much more cleanup after the end of those calls. But ambulance crews, because they're committed to the craft of the vocation of paramedicine in general, tend to prefer those calls. They tend to prefer the, the ones that are um, a bit more labor-intensive, but by and large, they are, are, are mismatched with uh, the types of calls that they are usually assigned for some of the reasons that you were mentioning at the beginning, as we see this thinning out of, of social services, more generally, more and more people are turning to medicalized forms of entitlement, calling them on one as one of kind of the last resources that they have. And so this kind of inundates ambulance crews, the number of people who are summoning them for services that they're more or less mismatched with handling.
you get this classification of legit calls and BS calls. Uh, when you do, you initially do a ride along with uh, the field uh, supervisor, Eric, whose primary task for the day, as you point out, was to monitor the largest segment of the company that you're working for, MRT, their 911 uh, ambulance fleet, their 911 ambulance fleet. You described Eric's appearance by writing, I thought he looked a lot like uh, law enforcement in his company uniform, which included a shiny supervisor badge, either due to coincidence or Eric's secret ability to read minds. He told me that he looks especially cop-like when he wears a bulletproof vest under his shirt. Why are emergency health service provider uniforms similar to law enforcement officers? What does that reveal to you about the way in which we are supposed to view the ambulance? Yeah, that's a good question. I, so in emphasizing that part in the book, I was more emphasizing the cop-like role that um, supervisors have over labor because they have the kind of shiny supervisor badge. And they look, at least in the company I said, they do look more like law enforcement than the ambulance crews themselves. And this was especially evident when this particular supervisor wore a bulletproof vest under his uh, under his uniform, which I should say is not a, a usual practice. Most people don't wear bulletproof vests who work on EM, you know, work in the ambulance. It was an optional um, thing that, you know, workers could purchase, but most found it not to be particularly useful. But I think the point maybe you're trying to hint at is, is that ambulance crews are, you know, uniformed frontline workers, even though they work for, in this case, a private company. It's a company that's contracted by the local government. And so they present as a figure of authority when they respond to different now one calls. Um, and this does, I think, establish a kind of an obvious kind of vertical relationship between providers and the clientele they see. Um, and this is consistent, you know, this, this vertical relation between providers and their clientele is, is not something that's just, you know, part of law enforcement. We see this as part of uh, other frontline institutions in, in medicine and other social services and things like that. Are ambulance workers then more so police today under neoliberalism than, say, pre-1980? Has their role changed due to neoliberalism? Yeah, I think it has. I think, you know, for the one one thing that's happened, I think, is that the actual the, the clientele and the, and the types of calls that they get has changed. Um, you know, as we see this thinning of the, the social safety net, more and more people are turning to emergency services um, for different social service provisions, which I should say is not, you know, anything novel or, or original revealed in my book. We've known this in medical sociology for a while, that after welfare reform in, in 1996, we saw increases in people who were coming to emergency departments and um, seeking other forms of medicalized aid, like uh, disability and stuff like that. Um, but under neoliberalism, the other effect besides just adjusting clientele demand is that it's adjusted um, you know, the ways in which labor is organized within these fleets. So. In the company that I studied, the you know management was concerned with you know essentially its bottom line. It wants to generate a profit, and because they're contracted by the uh, local government, the local government basically tells them that they have to respond to every now one call. That's just kind of like an it's it's essentially it's an entitlement type service. Anybody who wants an ambulance can get an ambulance, you just have to pick up a phone, dial 911, articulate a medical complaint, and the state kind of promises you an ambulance, and more often than not, it will deliver on that promise. It might, you know, delegate its its services out to a, a private company, but chances are somebody will come. I mean, there's a number of caveats there. You might have to wait a long time. It's possible you'll hit a busy signal, um, but somebody will eventually come. But it is a, 
it is an entitlement that that comes at a price, right? So ambulances, whether they're publicly operated or privately operated, they tend to run on a fee-for-service model. Um, and these fee, I mean, we probably shouldn't really call those fee-for-service. We probably call it debt-for-service because fees aren't really collected in the ambulance by ambulance crews. Um, you know, rather you accrue the debt by using the service. And those debts are usually paid by insurance providers, um, or they're not paid. But when they're paid by insurance providers, the majority are, are by public uh, operation. They're public insurance like um, Medicaid or Medi-Cal. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. So it, th this that is not particularly new in some sense. I mean, we've always had this kind of fee-for-service model since kind of the inception of the modern ambulance. It's always kind of been run that way in most areas of the country. Um, but what has changed is because more and more people are calling for uh, for a variety of reasons, and we're seeing an inundation of um, economically disadvantaged populations calling the ambulance, the companies like this are facing the problem where they have to res respond to every call that's given to them. But at the same time, a majority of these people that are calling are either uninsured or they're on you know, means-tested te Medicaid or something like that. And people who don't have insurance often don't pay their bills. And uh, those who are on Medicaid, Medicaid only covers a fraction of ambulance transport. So the, you know, the money for a company like MRT, which is a pseudonym, I should say, uh, is primarily in, like, wealthier neighborhoods where people are more likely to have private insurance. But those are the places that are actually not calling and summoning the ambulance very much. And so this company faces a dilemma. They essentially have to respond to everybody who requests or requires their services. Most of that demand comes in poor neighborhoods, but those poor neighborhoods tend to have people who are either uninsured or on uh, means-tested Medicaid, and so it's not gener generating uh, the thick flow of revenue that the company wants. And so a question I ask in the book is, you know, given these kind of new conditions, and I don't really know if those are particularly conditions of neoliberalism, but, you know, given those particular circumstances that this company faces, I want to understand how do they essentially respond to this dilemma, the dilemma being they have to respond to everybody, and most people who call are, are poor or economically disadvantaged in some way. And uh, those are people that are not going to generate a lot of revenue for them. And I think the company responds to this dilemma in a number of ways. I mean, they, you know, one thing they do is they try to lobby with the state government in, in California. So they try to increase Medicaid reimbursements at the state level. They sometimes lobby with the county government they're contracted with to try to adjust, you know, the late call fines that they're sometimes um, hit with. But their primary strategy, as I say in the book, is a quintessentially capitalistic one, and that's to intensify the exploitation of labor. So they want to increase the amount of surplus that they can appropriate from this labor force. And to put more simply, they want to increase a transport to crew ratio. So they want ambulance crews running through as many billable transports as they possibly can. So, you know, they realize, you know, most of these calls in poor neighborhoods are probably not going to generate them a lot of money. But it's kind of plug your nose and do it philosophy that the, the approach they take is, well, if we can just kind of turn through as many calls as we possibly can, increase this transport to crew ratio, then that will potentially generate a profit for us. And there's a number of ways in which they try to increase that ratio and how they try to increase the, um, you know, this, this exploitation of labor. And I think that some of this is inspired by kind of neoliberal uh, forms of organizing work. So one of the first, and so one way they do this is try to increase the, the flexibility of the labor force. So one of the first things 
that this company did when they took over this particular county contract is they eliminated ambulance stations. So with this company, and in many companies across the country, there are no ambulance stations. They're increasingly being eliminated. And they're being replaced with a dynamic posting system. So the company I worked at, you know, I log into work um, at headquarters, get in the ambulance with my paramedic partner, because I worked as an EMT. And then we would leave headquarters for 12, sometimes 14 hours a day, and we would never return to headquarters until the end of the shift, and we never went to um, you know, an ambulance station. Instead, when we weren't running 911 calls, we were posted at particular street intersections to wait for our next call. And these posting locations can shift um, quite literally on like a minute-to-minute basis, and they shift in response to the shifting demand in 911 calls at the time. So this, you know, produces incredible flexibility for management, but it produces incredible exhaustion for ambulance crews because when you're between 911 calls, you're not returning to an ambulance station to rest and recharge before your next call. Instead, you're told to wait at a particular street intersection, and you might wait for a couple of minutes, and if you don't get a call, then chances are the dispatchers are going to tell you to wait at a new location. So you're basically for 12 hours kind of running from call to call and running between posting locations to posting locations. I do think that those types of strategies are rooted in, you know, the neo liberal workforce that we um, tend to talk about in, in in labor issues in the United States more generally. So is burnout becoming a, a more and more of an issue amongst ambulance crews because of this kind of flexibility that the private market has put into ambulance work? Yes, I, I think it is. I think burnout is, I mean, the, the, the company that I worked for um, had high turnover. I mean, the, the turnover was so high that it was just, it was one reason why I was able to kind of do this project because then I went in there and said, you know, I, I did, a, I did a, basically I did ride-alongs to the company, um, just kind of sitting back and watching people work. I did that for about a year. And then in my second year of field work, I worked as an EMT. So people already knew me, management, the labor, they already knew me as, as an ethnographer and as somebody who wanted to study this organization. And then, you know, I wanted to start working there. Um, and I told them, I said, you know, I want to work here, but I don't want to work here for very long. I just want to work here for about a year or so. And they were totally on board. Like, oh, yeah, since everybody kind of comes in and, and leaves pretty quickly. Now, there are certainly a lot of people that – that, that worked there for a long period of time, but there's such a high turnover that it actually allowed me to do the project. And uh, this turnover, I think, is is inspired by burnout, but I think burnout is dependent in large part on these internal condi- conditions of work, like this flexibility and the fact that you're running from call to call. I think it's also uh, dependent on the fact that Ambulance crews tend to work a number of calls that they find vocationally unfulfilling. They work a lot of calls that they think of as largely inconsistent with the craft of paramedicine. And then I also just think that simple low levels of, of compensation um, and the fact that I only made you know pennies above the living wage and paramedics who were trained above EMTs only made a couple of dollars above me starting out is another strong reason for burnout. Is It just becomes exceedingly difficult to live off of the wages of an EMT or paramedic. And so I think that that also helps explain some of the relatively high turnover rates within the industry. Well, do you think that that leads to a lack of or a diminishing of the effectiveness of emergency health responders? Are, are ambulance workers less effective now because of the, their work conditions under neoliberalism than they were before? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I have the data to necessarily answer that kind of historical question like that, but I think you're right. I think that the 
economic pressures that come from an operation like this um, tends to burn out crews. It tends to exhaust them. It tends to intensify their frustrations. And I do think this translates in not necessarily always into poor patient care, but I do think it translates into, um, you know, some potentially tense relations between providers and their patients. And I think, you know, some of this is just kind of intuitive and somewhat obvious. If you make not very much as an EMT or a paramedic, and that's your sole source of income, then chances are you're going to have to work more than 40 hours a week. And so then if you're running a 911 call and it's the 60th hour of your uh, work week and you haven't returned to any ambulance stations and you work these 12-hour to 14-hour shifts in which you're very rarely ever even given a meal break, you know, you tend to be tired and, and you tend to be exhausted. And so when you then get that 911 call on the 11th hour of your shift during the 60th hour of your week, you know, tensions can run high and um, this can lead to potentially problematic interactions between providers and their patients. And I think, you know, it's, it's when I initially started this research, you know, I saw some interactions between EMTs and, 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 and their patients and paramedics and their patients. And I was pretty quick to judge them, to be honest with you, where I would think like, man, this person's being rude, they're being abrasive, um, they're acting in a way that I think is is inappropriate. But things changed quite a bit once I started working there, especially once I started working full-time schedules. It was just easy to lose your cool and to snap and to interact with patients in a problematic way, which then kind of you know fuels a lot of um, patients' already um, reasonable doubts about the effectiveness and uh, um, you know, the level of care that paramedics and EMTs provide um, to the community. We are speaking with sociologist Josh Syme. He is author of Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. Josh is assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. And you can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I-M. You mentioned during the tour, Eric, getting a call for a gunshot wound. But by the time the two of you arrive, situation has already been addressed. You add the blood splatter left on the sidewalk was located almost perfectly at the epicenter of what Eric described as a little nexus of evil. Along with a couple of other locations in the county, this five or so block area is distinctive not only in its intense marginality, but also in its apparent offensiveness to Eric and many others at MRT. He insisted an open-air drug market was just north of this blood splatter and a homeless encampment was only a few blocks south. Uh, You write how Eric's voice popped into my mind nearly every time I stepped out of an ambulance into this part of Agonia, saying this place is a little nexus of evil. I started to think he was sort of right, but true wickedness probably comes from outside the nexus, from those nefarious human systems and that pack suffering into places like this. So you said sort of. What was the evil in the area that you did witness? What did you come to learn as the cause of the evil in the nexus of evil that you perceived? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the point I was trying to make in that, in, in, in summarizing that part of my fieldwork is, you know, it was true. He, we went to this the, the site and he described it as a little nexus of evil. And I thought that was an interesting way to describe that area, um, you know, potentially a problematic way as kind of a, you know, as a sociology grad student at the time. And I kind of, you know, wrote that off as a, an easy way to judge an area, an area that he finds to be uh, offensive and morally questionable in a variety of ways. And I mean, the area of that part of the county just really kind of sticks out. Um, and 
it was true that every time I would, you know, respond to that area, either when I worked as an EMT or when I was shadowing other ambulance crews, you know, Eric's voice did pop into my mind about this place being um, a little nexus of evil. And I, I sort of did think that he was kind of right at some level because you'd see things that are kind of, you know, you're seeing a lot of crime and 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 violence, and you're seeing the outcomes of uh, of violence. You know, the the first death response I saw there as the first place I saw bone cut through skin. I saw my first overdose there. Um, and not only all these so-called legit calls, but I saw a lot of these BS calls in the area that were frustrating ambulance crews. And it was just not particularly a, a pleasant place to go. And, uh, you know, I started to think that he was right. Maybe there is something kind of evil about this. But I as a sociologist and thinking about the structural circumstances in which an area like this becomes possible and the reasons why people tend to suffer in these areas, I started to think about this uh, this evilness as being rooted in an actual social structure. And so one of the um, theorists and, and um, scholars I draw on is uh, Frederick Engels. You know, everybody kind of thinks about Frederick Engels as being like the Robin to Marx's Batman. Um, but I, I was drawing on his writings in in, uh, in working-class neighborhoods in, in Manchester, um, and he describes uh, what he calls social murder. And I thought that was pretty fitting for the types of areas I was, I was explaining. So it was very possible that Eric and I saw uh, the, the aftermath of an attempted murder there. That seems to be what happened. That explains that kind of that blood splatter that we arrived too late to actually see the body. Um, but I think we could also describe that area as um, the victim of social murder, social structures and structural violence that produce harm and concentrate harm into areas like that because of, um, you know, larger structures like capitalism and uh, white supremacy and so on. I just love the idea of Frederick Engels in a Robin outfit. You totally distracted me there. So you write, it's not very surprising that poorer people and people of color are more likely to experience what Eric, the uh, field supervisor, considers to be legit emergencies. This is true not only for things like gun violence, but also for intense traffic accidents and other sources of severe injury. It's also true for heart attacks, strokes, drug overdoses, seizures, breathing difficulties, psychiatric crises, and essentially every emergency listed in Eric's protocol book that all the EMTs get. For many social scientists, these patterns are indications of a society that concentrates vulnerability on down and out populations. Is that intentional? Can we claim innocence, arguing those are simply unintended consequences that lead to down and out populations' vulnerability? Do we intentionally not provide services of similar quality to poor and marginalized communities of color? Or is it an, an, is it an active decision or is it a mere an accident, a happenstance? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, Ingalls uh, helps us answer that a little bit. He provides some framework. So when he's when he's writing, he you know has this claim of, um, you know, that in in Manchester there's all this sickness, all all these um, all this high morbidity and mortality and all, all this suffering. And so he asks the question, you know. Who is to blame if anybody is to blame for this? And he says, you know, on the one hand, we might consider this to be like social manslaughter. And if it's social manslaughter, then, you know, it's kind of an unintended consequence. Nobody's really to blame. But he makes the argument, um, and it's one that I kind of extend in the book, 
is that it's not social manslaughter, it's social murder, meaning that there is some intention or at least some degree of uh, neglect that's made at a structural level. And so, um, you know, unsurprisingly, he, you know, puts the blame on the bourgeoisie. Now, he doesn't claim that it's any particular capitalist that is generating all this suffering. It's, it's rather capitalists and the bourgeoisie as a class, which, of course, we can't understand without thinking about it. Um, in terms, unless we think about it in, in the larger structure of that class relation, so it is you know a little bit tricky of a of a claim that that, that Ingalls is making, and perhaps perhaps I'm just parroting a little bit of how tricky that claim is by saying, you know, there is some blame here, and the blame should fall on um, those populations that particularly benefit off of uh, capitalism and white supremacy. You know, there's a certain group of, you know, there's populations that benefit off of uh, the suffering of others. And so there is some blame to be made. But of course, we can only do that by accounting for the structural circumstances that allow um, some populations to benefit off the suffering of others. Are ambulances symbols of white supremacy or representative of white supremacy in any way? Yeah, I you know I think it is a a, a white oriented institution, just like I think um, medicine, emergency medicine, and medicine more generally is. I, you know, I don't know if I would frame it as a white supremacist institution in the way that people often think about white supremacism, particularly now when we think about um, you know overt, explicitly racist um, civil society groups. But I, I do think it, it's fair to say that medicine, historically in the United States, and the ambulance is not excused from this, has preferenced in a variety of ways the well-being of white patients over patients of color. And I think the ambulance um, is part and parcel of that. And um, I don't think that that is, you know, some of the blame should be placed on uh, on providers and the um, you know, the implicit biases they carry. But I think that this is a probably a much more structural and institutional form of racism. But yes, I think that that medicine and the ambulance hopes to reinstantiate and and, um, and support uh, institutions uh, of white power, just as much as I think it's an institution that helps to support um, institutions of classism and, and the rule of, of, of the bourgeoisie and other uh, ruling economic classes. You explained that. As, I'm sorry, go statement. ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. It, yeah, sorry, just as just a broad general statement, I think that, yes, it is fair to say that the ambulance as well as emergency medicine is, is part of an institution of, uh, of white power. You explain that from the horse-drawn buggies that were run by hospitals after the Civil War to the motorized vehicles that were run by police departments, fire stations, funeral homes, and small companies after World War II, the ambulance has long been present in the lives of the urban poor. Moreover, civil rights activists in the 1960s and beyond helped expand ambulance accessibility to racial minorities and particularly to blacks in large cities. The ambulance's gravitation toward the bottom of the urban hierarchy held during the national expansion and standardization of paramedicine during the 1970s. The federal withdrawal and ambulance operations during the 1980s and the rise of national ambulance corporations during the 90s. So is the ambulance then a result of racial and class inequality in health care? When we see an ambulance, is it a symbol of racial and class inequality? And should we keep that in mind when we hear the sirens go off? Yeah, I think we should. I think it's a bit more complicated than you. So I think typically when we think about 
ambulances and urban inequality. I think the standard narrative that we get is that ambulances are absent or somehow exceptionally tardy in poor neighborhoods. I mean, you hear this in a number of pop culture songs and um, these claims made by by journalists that ambulances are either absent or or exceptionally tardy in, in, in poor neighborhoods. And I actually think that that is uh, misleading for the most part. While it might be true that uh, ambulances show up devastatingly late in in poor areas in many cases, and that these cases, you know, um, get a lot of uh, news traction, and I think for very good reason. And I do think it's the case that there are a number of people towards the bottom of urban hierarchies who, for a variety of reasons, choose to avoid calling 911 to summon an ambulance because either they're concerned with the bill or they're concerned that the police are going to show up. I think overall it is misleading to say that ambulances are absent or tardy in poor neighborhoods, because the evidence suggesting so is quite thin. And in fact, what we see, especially in the, in the case that I look at, but even when we look at ambulance um, records nationally, we see that the ambulance is busy and present in the lives of poor and otherwise vulnerable populations in the city, and that it, most of its cases are drawn from those particular areas. And I would say even the the research on response times, I think um, you know, I think more research needs to be done there. But I think, it, at least in my case, the evidence we found is that ambulances were actually not more likely to be tardy in poor neighborhoods, in part because of this dynamic posting system, right? So they had this dynamic posting system where you're able to put ambulances at essentially any intersection you want. Um, those posting locations can change. Um, pretty quickly. And so they're dynamically posting ambulances in high demand areas, which are, you know, more often to be uh, poor neighborhoods. Um, so yeah, I think there is an important question here of, of urban inequality and ambulance operations. I'm not convinced that the general narrative about ambulances being absent or tardy is the right one to have. I think it's more interesting to think about how the ambulance, because it is busy and present in the lives of the urban poor, it's more interesting to think about what they are doing, how are they contributing to the governance of this population and uh, the management of their suffering. And I argue in the book, hence the kind of, um, you know, admittedly the somewhat strange title to the book, Bandage, Sword, and Hustle, that is indicating the mechanisms of that governance. So I argue that in governing the urban poor, ambulance crews help to bandage bodies. They offer simple and often superficial solutions to deep and complicated structural problems. So ambulance crews are deployed very, very far downstream in a long Congo river that links you know, macro structure to personal suffering. And so the ambulance becomes a good case study in thinking about some of the superficial solutions that the state tends to offer in response to people's suffering. And that's not to trivialize the important work that ambulance crews do. And I think a lot of ambulance crews recognize this issue. They'll say, you know, we're out here offering offering a series of bandage solutions, um, either you know temporarily um, plugging a gunshot wound if it's a legit call, or you know taking somebody to the hospital to get a prescription refill if they just ran out of uh, their prescription and need a refill, and they can only go to an emergency department to do it as a kind of BS call. So there's this kind of bandaging of bodies 
And then I argue that they also help to sort suffering bodies in the city. And they do this in their interactions with law enforcement on the streets and with nurses at hospitals as they're deciding whether they should take a patient to the hospital and if they take a patient to the hospital, which hospital they go to and how they're classified into that hospital. And there's also the sorting um, that's kind of a decision made between ambulance crews. It's not really a decision made, but it's um, negotiated at least at some level between ambulance crews and law enforcement often about whether you're going to take somebody to the hospital, if they potentially, instead of going to the hospital, maybe go to jail, or if they're somehow just left where they are and, and both medical and, and police services um, include. So there's a sorting of suffering bodies that I think is really interesting and, and is revealed in studying the ambulance. And, and in this way, studying the ambulance means you have to also study these other institutions that it's constantly rubbing against, in this case, emergency departments and hospitals and, uh, and, and, and uh, police on the streets. And then finally, I say that ambulance crews and governing urban suffering help to hustle bodies. They rush people through periods of intervention. Now, this is not actually in conflict with, the, with claims that poor people and otherwise marginalized populations tend to wait for services. Um, I'm not necessarily arguing against that. I think when somebody calls 911, they do have to wait a significant amount of time. And then when they get in contact with an ambulance crew and they go to the hospital, chances are they have to wait even longer until they ever see a physician. So there's a lot of waiting. But from the standpoint of workers, and this book really does take like a work-centric approach, from the standpoint of workers, they're hustling through bodies, and they're hustling bodies through periods of intervention. Um, in part because management is trying to increase this transport to crew ratio, but also because workers want to rush through cases so that they can have you know a couple of minutes to catch their breath and and grab something to eat before they have to return to 911 resources. Um, so. Yeah, so part of this, in thinking about urban inequality and what is the ambulance, uh, what's its role in the in our understandings of an unequal city, I argue that the ambulance is actually busy and it's present in the lives of the urban poor and that it helps to govern them by bandaging, sorting, and hustling bodies. So by bandaging, sorting, and hustling bodies, not by or addressing uh, or solving the problems of urban suffering, but by managing that suffering, by governing that suffering, what does that re or what should that what do you hope that reveals to us about poverty and capitalism when we can only manage and govern suffering regulate suffering and not address or solve it yeah it's a good question i want to be clear i'm not you know placing the blame on on ambulance crews i'm not suggesting that they should be doing something else given the circumstances that they're put in, the structures that they work in, that's kind of all that they can do. And in fact, you look at the back of an ambulance and you see the instruments that they're even provided with, they are only giving instruments to respond to severe medical emergencies and to transport people to the hospital. So I'm not suggesting that, that it's a, you know, a failure of workers. It's um, uh, you know part of the structural circumstances that they're in. But yeah, I think that this this examination of a bandaging of bodies and a sorting of bodies and a hustling of bodies does speak to a broader governance of urban suffering that we see under advanced capitalism, where we have a series of interventions that tend to only focus on offering superficial or, you know, relatively kind of like downstream interventions. So, you know, most of the services that we deploy to respond to urban suffering are kind of either like emergency medicine or law enforcement. So these things are deployed very, very far downstream and along causal rivers. So I think in some sense, this isn't particularly surprising. Um, 
you know, we, uh, you know, the argument could be made that capitalism needs poor people, it needs suffering. And so it's perhaps not surprising that we, that we manage and govern suffering in this way. Um, in terms of the potential interventions we could make, you know, short of eliminating or dramatically restructuring what we understand to be capitalism, I think that some of the interventions that we can make into the ambulance are, are, are pretty interesting. So one argument I make in the book is that we should decommodify the ambulance. Um, this is a bit different than saying deprivatize the ambulance. I do think that we should deprivatize it. I think that it should be publicly operated. And if we're presented with two options, a public ambulance option or a private ambulance option, I think the answer is always to select the public option. They're more accountable to publics. There's evidence that it offers better patient care. And it's uh, even stronger evidence that it's better for workers in terms of compensation and benefits. Um, but I'm unsatisfied with the claim that, oh, we should just deprivatize the ambulance, um, just like I'm unsatisfied with claims that we should deprivatize a number of services that are, um, you know, offered to poor and otherwise vulnerable populations. I think we need to decommodify the ambulance because even when you have a public ambulance operation, say like something that you have in Chicago, it's still run on a fee-for-service revenue model. So those public companies, or not, I shouldn't call them companies, public operations still operate within the same type of market. They operate in a transport market, and this motivates an intensified exploitation of, of workers. Public operations are just as much interested in increasing this transport to crew ratio, because maybe they're not necessarily doing it in the name of profit, but they're probably doing it in the name of you know fiscal responsibility or balancing the budget or something like that, something we would typically expect under a, a neoliberal state. So we need to decommodify the ambulance, at least that's the claim that I make in the book. Um, so this means transform the ambulance into a true entitlement, so where you don't have, um, you know, fee-for-service or debt-for-service models, the ambulance becomes radically restructured to where it's available to anybody, um, essentially free for people who are summoning the ambulance and its services. But I think that's probably not going to be enough either. I think we also need to transform the vocation of the ambulance, transform what it is capable of providing. So on the one hand, this means, you know, transforming the training, but I think also transforming um, the instruments and what is possible inside the ambulance. And one policy solution, which I thought was kind of interesting, that was offered, um, or was at least proposed by an Australian sociologist, was to essentially replace the role of the EMT with a social worker. And so you'd have a social worker with kind of, you know, some training and basic life support skills working next to a paramedic who would be trained in responding to the kind of the legit emergency problems, legit medical emergencies, I should say. And then, you know, this, this social worker paramedic duo could respond to a variety of emergencies. And those emergencies could be classified, you know, as either social emergencies or medical emergencies, of course, recognizing that those things are deeply interconnected. Um, and then this would obviously mean restructuring the safety net more broadly, because you'd have to have it be the case that the ambulance could take people not only to the hospital, but to also take them and connect them to other forms of services, um, housing services, um, sobriety centers, and, and places like that. 
Josh, this is a fascinating book, and your conclusion at the end with your possible solutions are amazing. The uh, idea of privatization and commodification not being the exact same thing is a really interesting discussion. We've been speaking with sociologist Josh Syme. He's author of Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I-M. One last question for you, Josh, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, suffering tends to obey a kind of social gravity. Something in the cosmos pulls it toward the city's destitute and stigmatized population. Isn't suffering our systems, capitalism's punishment for not participating effectively or enough within that system? Isn't suffering another motivational tool of capitalism to get workers to do a better job or work harder? Isn't capitalism dependent upon suffering? Oh, yeah, that is an interesting question. Uh, yeah, I, I assume that suffering is a necessary or an expected outcome of capitalism in a system that um, depends on the exploitation of workers. And I look, I, you know, I, I make a claim in the book, um, um, and I'm making this claim in an article that I'm writing that everyone suffers. You know, I'm not saying that suffering is limited to poor people or people of color. Everybody suffers. CEOs suffer. People within this organization, the managers, and they suffer. People variety, suffer in a variety of ways. But suffering, as I say in the quote that you you just mentioned, tends to obey a kind of social gravity. So something in the in the cosmos is push or pull it towards the bottom of complex urban hierarchies. And this isn't new information, right? We've known this from the writings of Frederick Engels, W.B. Du Bois, Jane Addams, the Chicago School of Sociology, and on. We've long known that that suffering tends to concentrate in that way. Um, now, do I think it's like a necessary motivation tool? I'm not so sure. I mean, it could be the case that it's just an effect of being, um, you know, an op being in an oppressed or marginalized position. Um, and I think there's a, you know, in thinking about suffering as being morbidity and mortality, there's a long tradition in, in medical sociology of showing that as you fall down a social gradient, so I'm thinking about the work of Sir Michael Marmot and things like that, um, as you fall down on a social gradient, you're more likely to um, have a variety of, um, of chronic illnesses. So yeah, I'm a little reluctant to say that it is, um, it, that it is, um, necessary for the functions of capitalism. But at the same time, I, I do say in the book that so long as capitalism exists, so long as white supremacy exists, we can kind of forever expect that suffering will tend to fall disproportionately on people at the bottom of economic and racial hierarchies. Josh, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This is a fascinating topic, and you'll be surprised that we've been doing this show for over 23 years, and this is our first discussion on the sociology of ambulances. Actually, I think you will not be surprised about that. So thank you very much for talking to us about something that we have not discussed in the past. I really appreciate you being on today. No problem. Thank you very much. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so... You do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell, where did you leave those damn vote totals, gets a this is hell tote bag so you can tote those totals around. 
around. Alex, do you have any question, any of the answers to this week's question from... Uh, uh, yeah, me and Jonah have been F5ing over here. Sebastian W. says, right next to the CCTV tapes of Jeffrey Epstein's last night. <laughs> Jack W. says, an offshore account less than under the name Jay Guido. <laughs> Joshua L. says, in Hillary's inbox... Eric T says on Little St. James Island. I think we're going to see a lot of Epstein stuff happening here. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, Mitchell C says Oceanic Flight 815. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, Zach N says Moscow, Idaho. Thank you. Mike M says all Tulsi voters were suppressed because they just kept voting present. <laughs> Mark C says in the deep state freezer to preserve freshness. Mm. Where did you leave those damn vote totals? Heather C says hashtag Pete the Cheat. Left him in him, maybe? Gerdes says, somewhere in my heart. Heart emoji. Wally R says, in the breast pocket of Pat's Republican coat, uh, cloth coat. Hmm. Walter M says, with Hillary's email server in Ukraine. Brian S says, they were uh, wished away to the Iowa cornfields. Where did you leave those damn vote totals? Shane M in a mayonnaise jar on Funkin' w- Wagnall's front porch. <laughs> what the hell? Arthur R says, they're at Langley. Uh... <laughs> Betsy S. says, Pete's mayo jar. <laughs> Scott S. says, Biden's, uh, Joe Biden's son is offering them as a bargaining chip to Ukraine to get his job back. Alan G. says, did anyone check Hillary's emails? Jesus Christ. Benjamin C. says, in a van down by the river. Scott C. says, your mom's house. Greg G. says, votes. You thought this was a democracy? Adam D. says, in the seventh seal. Ken M. says, in the bag of money Mike Bloomberg gave the DNC. Nathaniel T says, soak them for 20 minutes and chop them in a loose meat sandwich. If your dark money pickles are good enough to make, uh, no one seems to notice. Corey G says, behind, uh, between the couch cushions of a CIA break room. John T says, on a specially designed app for my Fitbit. A couple more. Where did you leave those damn vote totals? Nick A says, somewhere in Iowa. Thanks, Nick. And uh, Kelly H says, uh, stegnified into a picture of Hitler encrypted with the uh, with the Breitbart public key on the right out of a scratched up AOL CD-ROM mail out in a flaming bag of poo on the bedside table of Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Kelly has put a lot of thought into this apparently. So, uh, you know, we'll have some more of your answers to this week's question from hell throughout the week. Uh, and it, it, some of those are just, the answers are really well thought out, are very complex, are very interesting, are very intriguing, are very just really great answers. So why the hell did the one I laughed at the most was your mom's house? <laughs> God, I am so simple. I am so simple. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The, again, this week's question from hell is, where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m. here Chicago time, just like today's show. Uh, live from Mexico City, so uh, political scientist Umberto Beck will be on to talk about his Descent Mag piece, Year One of AMLO's Mexico. When AMLO took office, there was a sense of hope, enthusiasm, and renewal. Today, there's a growing sense of unease about whether his administration can deliver the changes the Mexicans so desperately need. Yeah, well, I, nobody really expected him to deliver real changes because, I mean... He's got like centuries of corruption to go up against and uh, political institutions that have been in place forever. So, I mean, how much is he going to be able to get done? I'm, I'm betting not very much. Tune into tomorrow's live show streaming here. This is hell.com podcast shortly after we've done our live stream. And uh, you can hear all the answers to this week's question from hell tomorrow as well as Thursday when we announce the winner. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. I also do the live stream podcast. We'll have some listener feedback tomorrow. More of your answers to this week's question from hell, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. We want to thank Alex and Jonah for the, doing the production and also to sociologist Josh Syme, our guest today, author of Bandage Sort and Hustle Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I. I am your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>